With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the north side of the San Francisco Bay to Singapore, welcome to Urban X Real Talk Fitness Radio with your host, business owner, lecturer, author, master trainer, Tiaja. With over 30 years of experience in the health and fitness industry, he will challenge the fitness between your ears. So prepare your mind, body, and soul for the revolution of self-care, the evolution of fit, with real talk about real people, real health, real fitness, and the real deal behind our present illness culture. Real talk every time, all the time. Get weekly insights on how to shift your thinking, emoting, eating, training, hydrating, goal setting, and resting for you, the everyday athlete. You can cheat your fitness, but you can't steal your health flow. It's Tuesday, 9 a.m. Let's flow. No man ever steps into the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Heraclides. Uh, I believe the problem is not that folks are trying to avoid getting health care. The problem is they can't afford it. And that's why my plan emphasizes lowering costs, uh, not only setting up a government plan so that people who don't have health insurance can buy into it and will get subsidized, but also making sure that those who have health insurance, because keep in mind, we've got millions of Americans all across the country who have health insurance but are struggling with rising co-payments, deductibles, premiums under George Bush. Uh, families are paying 78% more on health care than they were previously. Just, let me just finish, uh, because this is an important policy uh, point. Uh, we put in a catastrophic reinsurance plan that will help reduce those premiums for families by an average of about $2,500 per year. But the, the last point uh, that I, I think is worth making, uh, every expert that's looked at this has said there is not a single person out there who's going to want health care who will not get it under my plan. And it's true that some people could game the system by just waiting until they get sick and then they show up. But keep in mind that my plan also says children will be able to stay on their parents' plan up until the age of 25. And so I don't believe that there are a whole bunch of folks out there that will not get coverage. And John, both, in you, both you and Hillary have a hardship exemption where if people can't afford to buy health care, you, know, you exempt them so that you sort of don't count them. But and, we cover them. Well, we cover no, them, but you don't cover them. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. do. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, John, we do. It's not true, Bob. No, no, John, can I say that is true in, what in Massachusetts? No, that is not true. The, no, same as, no. It, for, here's the problem. The problem with this argument is you can make exactly the same argument about Social Security. I mean, you think about the analogy. What George Bush says is he wants people to be able to get out of the Social Security system, choose, elect to get out of the Social Security system. Well, that's exactly what this argument is. This argument is you shouldn't have to have health care. If you choose not to have health care, you shouldn't have to have it. And that is a threshold question. It is a judgment. It's a fair policy debate. There's nothing, nothing wrong with us arguing about this. But, but. I believe that there is not a single man, woman, and child in America who's not worthy of help. I promise Senator Clinton that she could respond as well. 
Please, try to keep it to 30 seconds. Well, first of all, if you don't start out trying to get universal health care, we know, and our members of Congress know, you'll never get there. If a Democrat doesn't stand for universal health care that includes every single American, you can see the consequences of what that will mean. I think it is imperative that we have plans, as both John and I do, that from the very beginning say, you know what, everybody's got to be covered. There's only three ways of doing it. You can have a single payer system, you can require employers, or you can have individual responsibility. My plan combines employers and individual responsibility while maintaining Medicare and Medicaid. I think that the whole idea of universal health care is such a core democratic principle that I am willing to go to the mat for it. I've been there before, I will be there again. I am not giving in, I am not giving up, and I'm not gonna start out leaving 15 million Americans out of health care. Secondly, we have seen once again a kind of evolution here. When Senator Obama ran for the Senate, he was for single payer and said he was for single payer if we could get a Democratic president and Democratic Congress. As time went on the last four or so years, he said he was for single payer in principle, then he was for universal health care, and then his policy is not. It is not universal. And, you know, this is kind of like the present vote thing, because the Chicago Tribune, his hometown paper, said that all those present votes was taken a pass. It was for political reasons. Well, when you come up with a universal health care plan and you don't have any wiggle room left, you know that you're going to draw a lot of political right. heat. I am not running for president to put band-aids on our problems. I want to get to universal health care for every single American. Fundamentally, I think that there is a recognition on the part of many Americans uh, that health, access to health care should be a human right and that it's not a market good to be traded like any other commodity. Uh, but somehow the system has taken on a life of its own in that country and it's, it's very difficult to get a handle on. I think my, my primary message to the people of the United States is that I really believe this is a time for courage uh, and it's not a moment to uh, take tiny steps or baby steps uh, but that the, it seems to me that the American population has indicated a readiness for a real change in the way that the healthcare system works and they need to grasp that opportunity now and, uh, and go for change with a capital C. You know what I would do? I would sum it up uh, in three words if I was President Obama, so pretentious for me to say. I'd get up every morning and at every press conference say, Medicare for everyone. Now in the United States, Medicare of course deals with that program which is basically reserved for seniors 65 years of age and over. They love it, they know it works, it's a government plan, it's not identical to Canada's but they would not want to see it gone. And I think that those who don't have Medicare because they're not there in age yet, and those on Medicaid, on welfare, who are really the, the victims of all of this, and the whole system seems to be victimizing its people, that would resonate with them. It would mean something. Medicare for everyone. You can attach the other arguments, moral arguments and also economic and political arguments. It's the right thing to do. A society should look after its least uh, strong, its most vulnerable sectors but Medicare for everyone. And if I would be so presumptuous, one last comment. No major battle of this nature, as we had in Saskatchewan when Douglas implemented Medicare, as Pearson had it when he implemented Medicare, as uh, Trudeau had it when he had the Canada Health Act, no major political battle 
can be won without strong, decisive leadership at the top political level making the message clear and the argument solid as to why their citizenry should support it. Doesn't it just blow you away to hear our congressional leaders debate the importance of universal health care for the American people? You know, there's always the caveat that if we do not insure everyone, then those who are outside the system who will need to utilize emergency care services will be a drain on the rest of the taxpayers. Stop there. When I was growing up, my idea of emergency care was for those who had a real emergency, like falling while playing football or breaking one's arm, or even the rare instance of someone being stabbed or shot. Believe it or not, there was a time when people were more apt to be stabbed than shot, but I digress. Back then, something as commonplace as a broken arm constituted emergency care, but not once did the thought occur about who paid for it. I must have thought that such care was akin to socialized medicine because I never heard my parents complain nor mention how someone needing emergency services was a drain on their finances. When did Americans become so callous? It's not as if we get to determine what happens to our tax dollars anyway. I always believed it would be cool to earmark a portion of your tax dollars towards a trust fund for your children, either for college expenses or a down payment on a car or even a home. If we were serious about the rising perils of personal debt, this would have taken place decades ago. But it's obvious we're not. We only want to give lip service to changing the fortunes of the working class because it deflects the spotlight away from the elephant in the room, which is the national debt. But again, I digress. They have reduced the debate about health care to two things affordability, that is, how are we going to pay for it, and how many users do we have to mandate to buy in to make it affordable. Just like they have reduced the narrative about who is considered important versus who isn't by whether that person has a job and thus can pay taxes. Again, when I was growing up, the narrative about one's social status was determined by whether you were rich or poor. Today, uh, that narrative has been enclosed or in encoded language, like whether you are a taxpayer or not, or one of the insured versus the uninsured, as if either places you in some elite status. Yet in the minds of many, it does. Perhaps it's because to have a job or to be insured makes you a more likely uh, voter or a taxpayer, which is frankly the only time you matter at all. It's sad to see people gain some sort of weird esteem from possessing a handicap placard as if having acquired one grants you VIP status simply because you get to park closer to the entrance of the store. When you give over your power to control outcomes for your health to that of private insurers or the government for that matter, then you are simply a manager of your life and not an owner. Welcome to Urban X Real Talk Fitness Radio, where we challenge the fitness between your ears. I'm your host, Siaja. Today on episode 29, part four of our series, 10 More Minutes to Own Your Gravity, the debate for universal health care is as old as America itself. The fact is, every American should be insured and offered a proviso in our formal education for self-care assurance while being allowed a buy-in to health care as a backup insurance policy only. 
2008 will be just another year unless you decide today that it won't be. It is Tuesday, February 20th, 2018. Let's flow. Years ago, a client came to me with a little known condition, at least back then, called fibromyalgia. In those days, doctors treated fibromyalgia as a psychosomatic illness that largely afflicted women, meaning they didn't believe for a moment that the pain and depleted energy these women were experiencing were any more real than the boogeyman. Now, she had been bounced around like a tennis ball sent to specialist after specialist, but no one was able to find anything wrong. So she became confused and hopeless about the answer to her own internal question, what happened to my health and how can I get it back? See, medical science has done wonders in learning to extend human life through treatment, but has made little progress in increasing the quality of that life. Depression, another one of those soft tissue injuries that won't show up on most clinical tests, hovered over her constantly. Someday she would just burst into tears during a set, as her mind was overrun by dark thoughts and emotions that were pregnant with fear. This was no way to live one's life. Her insurance company refused to cover any of her tests or band-aid treatments because the doctors, though treating her alleged hypochondria, declined to diagnose her with anything medically substantive. But thankfully, she was no quitter. She didn't believe she was on the earth to suffer for no apparent reason. So we began an aggressive program. We changed her diet, um, her resting patterns, hydration events, and emphasized full body workouts with high intensity interval training. I also gave her some literature on how the body works, which she studied diligently. We also spent a portion of our session in prayer and meditation per her request. One of the things I continue to emphasize is the reality that the body heals itself provided we restore it to its proper level of functioning. So several months later, I received a card from her that she had apparently left at the front desk for me. It read, uh, Dear T, today I have no anxiety, no pain, and great energy. Every symptom has vanished as if in thin air. I know in my heart, mind, and soul that I have completely recovered. I have lived decades without knowing how to respect my body, but no more. I am forever grateful for the knowledge and strength I found through meeting you. Through the good and the bad, I have learned to take personal responsibility to own my health, as you always say. Today I experience pure joy, no more medication, and each day I am learning to take care of me. I don't know how I'll ever repay you, but for now, thank you. Her letter still brings tears to my eyes even today, not because of what I did, but because of what she was able to do through her own power. She learned to answer her own internal question that her answer to the big corporate healthcare insurers was to self-empower herself through education and self-care. But you know, this whole healthcare debate uh, is a baseless argument. For one would think the notion of universal healthcare is recent history. It is not. Let me quickly walk you through the corridors of history. 
On July 16, 1798, John Adams signed a bill to provide for the relief and maintenance of disabled seamen, creating the United States Marine Hospital Service. It gave rise to a network of hospitals located at sea and river ports across the United States, and slowly over the next century, it ultimately evolved into the National American Public Health Service. In the beginning, in a process administered by their employers, sailors paid a 20-cent tax every month out of their wages as their share toward a form of insurance for hospital care, which provided for doctors, room and board, and medicine, and the government directed the use of those funds and underwrote most of the real remaining costs. The tax was turned over quarterly to the United States Treasury, and it was used in the district where it was collected. With the Siemens Act, for the first time in American history, the federal government mandated and paid for the temporary medical treatment of individuals who could not afford their own private care creating a safety net for thousands of mariners. Now fast forward to 1938, and we see a President Truman who was strongly committed to a single, universal, comprehensive health insurance plan. Whereas FDR's 1938 program had a separate proposal for medical care of the needy, it was Truman who proposed a single egalitarian system that included all classes of society, not just the working class. He emphasized that this was not socialized medicine. He also dropped the funeral benefit that contributed to the defeat of national insurance in the progressive era. Congress had mixed reactions to Truman's proposal. The chairman of the House Committee was an anti-union conservative and refused to hold hearings. Senior Republican Senator Taft declared, I consider it socialism. It is to my mind the most socialistic measure this Congress has ever had before it. Taft suggested that compulsory health insurance like the full Unemployment Act came right out of the Soviet Constitution and walked out of the hearings. The AMA, the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, and the American Bar Association and most of the national press had no mixed feelings. They hated the plan. The AMA claimed it would make doctors slaves, even though Truman emphasized that doctors would be able to choose their method of payment. In 1946, the Republicans took control of Congress and had no interest in enacting national health insurance. They charged that it was part of a large socialist scheme. Sound familiar? Truman responded by focusing even more attention on the national health bill in the 1948 election. After Truman's surprise victory in 1948, the AMA thought Armageddon had come. They assessed their members an extra $25 each to resist national health insurance. And in 1945, they spent $1.5 million on lobbying efforts, which at the time was the most expensive lobbying effort in American history. The AMA and its supporters were once again very successful in linking socialism with national health insurance. And as an anti-communist sentiment rose in the late 1940s and the Korean War began, national health insurance became vanishingly improbable.
Truman's plan died in a congressional committee. Compromises were proposed, but none were successful. Instead of a single health insurance system for the entire population, America would have a system of private insurance for those who could afford it and public welfare services for the poor. Discouraged by yet another defeat, the advocates of health insurance now tore, turned towards a more modest proposal they hoped the country would adopt, hospital insurance for the aged, which was the beginnings of Medicare. You know, on the average, Americans don't go to the doctors more than the Germans, Canadians, or the Japanese, for instance. In fact, Americans go to the doctor nearly 50% less frequently than most other countries. What makes the American healthcare system so different than any other countries is that when Americans do go to their doctors, they pay a lot more. Let me give you a few examples. The average cost of angioplasty, the procedure where they widen, narrowed, or obstructed arteries with a balloon in South Africa will cost you $6,500. In the United Kingdom, it is $7,300. But in the United States, that same procedure will cost you, on average, $31,600. The average hip replacement in Spain costs $6,800. That same procedure in the United States will cost you $29,000. A C-section in New Zealand will cost you $2,200. That same procedure, again, in the United States will cost you $16,000. How about a pain reliever like Oxycontin? In Spain, Oxycontin costs only $36 for 60 pills. In America, $265 for the same 60 pills. This is a unique American problem. Other countries just don't have this problem. Because rather than be at the mercy of a bunch of private insurers, what they've done is create what is known as a master priceless. The government then says, if you want to sell to all of our people, then here's what you can charge for, let's say, a checkup. Here's what you can charge for an MRI or a prescription from Lipitor. So then whether that bill goes to a heavily regulated private insurance company as it does in Germany or directly to the government like in the U UK, the doctors, the drug companies or hospitals can't refuse. Each country tells the doctor or the hospital or drug company how much that bill will be. And because the government controls access to all the customers, the hospitals, doctors, and drug companies acquiesce. In America, the idea of healthcare is treated from the lens of a consumer, that you'll do what you do when you go to Best Buy to purchase a television. But consumerism doesn't work for healthcare. It doesn't work because oftentimes by the time you need it, you're likely unconscious in the ambulance or you're under duress. It's the time when you have the least bargaining power. And by the time you're in an emergency room, you have lost all leverage because your only thought is to have the problem fixed, regardless of the cost. One last thing. Most national health care systems are not socialized. Many foreign countries provide universal health care of high quality at reasonable cost using private doctors, private hospitals, and private insurance plans. Some countries offering universal coverage have a smaller government role than the United States. Americans switch to government-run Medicare 
when they turn 65. In Germany and Switzerland, for example, seniors stick with their private insurers no matter how old they are. Socialized medicine may be a scary term, but in truth, many Americans are used to government-run medicine. The United States Department of Veteran Affairs is one of the world's purest models of socialized medicine at work. In the Medicare system, covering about 45 million elderly or disabled Americans, the federal government gets to make the rules and pays the bills. And yet, socialized health care systems are enormously popular with the people who use them and consistently rate high in surveys of patient satisfaction. So the problem isn't socialism. The real problem with foreign healthcare systems is that they're foreign, which offends the mindset sometimes referred to as American exceptionalism that says our strong and wealthy and enormously productive country doesn't need to borrow any ideas from the rest of the world. Look, no one is knocking doctors here. I've known plenty and most are some of the most caring people on the planet. But over the last century or so, the medical paradigm from which they must operate has failed both us and them miserably. This is because the modern medical met paradigm is reductionist by nature. It focuses on fixing what is broken in one area of the body while ignoring the wisdom of the whole body. How ironic that integrative medicine doesn't consider the integration of the body, mind, emotions, and soul. I have always been and will always be an advocate for universal self-care. In fact, my personal mantra, indeed our mission statement, is self-care over health care. That health care is the new, that self-care, pardon me, is the new health care. Self-care is focused on building and strengthening people so that they can champion the rigors of life rather than health care which focuses solely on broken systems. I personally won't rest until I have everyone within the sound of my voice writing their own personal letter. Dear self, today I have no anxiety, no pain and great energy. Every symptom has vanished as if in thin air. I know in my heart, mind and soul that I have completely recovered I have lived decades without knowing how to respect my body, but no more. I am forever grateful for the knowledge and strength I found through meeting you. Through the good and bad, I have learned to take personal responsibility to own my health, as you always say. Today, I experience pure joy, no more medication, and each day I am learning to take care of me. I don't know how I'll ever repay you, but for now, Thank you. Dear friends, I wish above all things that you be in health and that you prosper just as your soul prospers. You have been listening to Urban X Real Talk Fitness Radio with your host, Tiaja. Please join us next week as we continue to challenge the fitness between your ears. And don't forget to check out our website at www.urbanxfitness.net. Once there, feel free to leave a comment, ask a question, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. You will also find our online store, the Urban Experience Fit Stores 1 and 2, as well as our top-selling nutritional products, Cherry Minerals, Ion Magnesium, 
Museum as well as Kiani Products. And coming soon, our online bookstore featuring our upcoming release, The Ten Seeds Planted for Health, along with other powerful authors and ebooks. Until next week, as always, walk in health and peace. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.